all going, guys? Doing all right? It's amazing when the kids go out, isn't it? I feel like I don't really know what to do at that point, where we should all just have a little lie down. It's, uh, you like, you deserve it. It's so amazing, isn't it? I think today, I knew it was going to happen at some point, we're going to be overrun by these little, uh, you know, these little feet, right? You know, the ratios are out of control at the moment. It feels like there's more kids than adults, doesn't it? Next, they'll be kicking us out. They'll be doing kids' church in here. We'll be, like, in all sorts of different rooms, upstairs. At least the crackers are great. You know, it's a good time out there. Hey, we're into this uh, season. Where I love a good series. I love a good series. And we're into this series at the moment, um, The Family of God. And uh, Jen Russell kicked us off really nicely uh, on this. And really, this has been a series that I've been wanting to give or have us get into, probably for the, ever since we got started, really, at St. Augustine. So it's been kind of five years on the brew, so to speak. Um, and it's really important for us as a church, particularly in this cultural moment, that uh, some of the things that we think through, because, uh, you know, we live in a world that's deeply divided, isn't it? It seems increasingly that race is a, a major issue, and it's deep, deep, deep divisions, deep lines around this. And, you know, what is so interesting about the Christian story is really as this, you know, as it basically branches out from Jerusalem through Judea and through the ends of the earth, it's really an amazing story about uh, cultural reconciliation. You know, the very first church was, um, sorry, Mark, this has got nothing to do with the notes, by the way. Uh, we'll get into this talk soon. But the very first church, you know, as it, it got going, it's under deep persecution, and then it kind of branched out. But this, the very first city where the name Christian was attached to followers of Jesus was Antioch. And what was so significant about the church of Antioch was, that it was you know, it's a massive city in, um, you know, in Syria, and it had these 19 different um, you know, cultural divisions or ethnic divisions. So they had all these different, and you know, they had these walls. Whoever thought about building a wall to keep cultures apart? I don't know. Seems like an old idea. People are still doing it. But so the idea was to keep cultures apart to stop the cultural infighting. And interestingly, within the city, there was this group of people that would reach over the walls and would gather together in worship. They would reach over those walls and gather together to have meals. And it was so weird. People didn't have any idea what was going on. People thought it was going to threaten the very cultural framework that you know, the whole Roman Empire ran on, which was keep people in their little cultural boxes. And these people, they were, like, they were going, what is going on here? It was deeply puzzling. And that's when the name Christian was attached to these Jesus followers, because these were seen as, you know, of little, you know, they didn't know what to call them, so they were called little Christs. But it was from that, it completely, you know, changed people's framework. It was deeply subversive, and it formed something in the imagination of the ancient world that people had never seen before. So these, the Christians were called a, just kind of a new type of humanity or a new species. It was the only way they could talk about this, because people had never, ever seen this before uh, in the ancient world. Now, fair to say, we wouldn't have a New Testament if we wouldn't have you know, some of the kind of real grit and grind between how the gospel actually went out to other cultures. But the Bible does, well, the end of the New Testament finishes with, of course, Paul basically in Rome and an Ethiopian heading off back to Ethiopia to the very ends of the earth. And so you have this amazing kind of cross-cultural reconciliation uh, taking place. And you, you, you know, well, we definitely know any of the notes now. So in, the, in uh, Second Corinthians, Paul talks of saying, like going to, you know, to say, yeah, 
um, through the person of Jesus, we all have been reconciled to God. Now we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So I want to dig into this. It's super important for us. It's super that important that we get into some of this in this particular cultural moment, and we're not going to get through all of it. We're not going to totally you know, unearth what are the big problems, how does it work, what's critical race theory, all this kind of stuff. We're not going to get there. What I'm trying to do is lay a bit of a foundation for how the Bible understands uh, human beings. What does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be part of the family uh, of God. So we're going to be doing this for a little while. I've got the first three. Jen kicked us off nicely, and oh my gosh, I can't wait. Can't wait. Hey, um, one of the things um, that good old COVID um, put the kibosh on uh, last year, among a, you know, a number of things, it was a funny old year, wasn't it, um, was that uh, I was invited to be a part of a group that was going to have an all-expenses-paid trip to Israel. And, man, it was going to be really exciting. And I've got a good friend of mine. His name is Graham Tomlin. He um, takes these tours throughout um, uh, Israel. And one of the places that I wanted to, I was really looking forward to going to, uh, on with Graham's recommendation, was uh, the Church of the Paternoster. Now, Paternoster uh, in, um, in uh, Latin means is our father. It's the first words of the Lord's Prayer. And what's so, um, the Church of the Paternoster, it's kind of on the side of um, the Mount of Olives. And um, what we have in the Church of the Paternoster, particularly, is that through the, around the colonnade, all through the gardens on these walls, are these amazing mosaics. And it's the Lord's Prayer in, in, in over a hundred different languages. And what Graham was telling me was saying, it's just like this amazing experience to go there. You know, he takes these tours, but many of the tours, there are people who have pe- all speak the different languages. But you kind of hear, as you go to the church, the Paternoster, um, the, the Lord's Prayer spoken in all these different languages. And it's this overwhelming experience that, oh my gosh, I've never met you before. We're completely different. But somehow, we're brothers and sisters, There's something big, there's something really international about the family of God, what what has happened through the person of Jesus. And this kind of symbolizes it uh, here. It's like hundreds of of these. It's absolutely uh, phenomenal. Another site uh, Graham recommended going to um, is just around the corner. It's 10 k's away, uh, the gate of the Jaffa. So good for Aucklanders. All all this goes through there. Um, It's called the Church of the Annunciation. And the Church of the Annunciation, um, they have all these paintings around the side of it. Over 50 different countries are represented there. They were given color paintings palettes and said, hey, all these, you know, different, um, 50 different countries um, to paint the Madonna and child or Jesus and, and Mary. And it's just this, again, this overwhelming sense of the internationalness of the family of God. Here, these painters, they're all, you've got this one reality, you know, the birth of Jesus, and it's reflected into the world through the lens of all these different countries. It's like this reality is so big, you can't just talk about it in one way. But it's also this reality is so personal, right? It's not just something that goes on in our heads. We're deeply invested into it. This is part of our lives. And because culture is part of our lives, this reality, of course, gets reflected into the world through um, our different cultures, using our different language sets, using our different color palettes. It's all happening there. It's kind of an overwhelming sense, isn't it? It's beautiful. Um, It really hit home for me 
um, the kind of the real internationalness um, or the multi-ethnic um, nature of um, the family of Jesus really hit home for me in 2006. Uh, I was part of a small group of people who, um, a group of small people, <laughs> no, <laughs> there were some t- people taller than me, it's not hard to do. Um, we were like a small group from um, New Zealand church leaders, and we uh, were part of this kind of crew that met in Malaysia, and it was a big international conference of church leaders thinking about um, evangelism, in fact. And it really hit home for me because, you know, I grew up in Nelson, not known really for its diversity. Um, but in my little group, in my worship, you know, in my little worship group or a workshop group of 10, um, there was a person from Latvia, Janis Lanka, still in, bo- still in touch with him, Latvian, uh, a person from Indonesia, a person from Poland, a person from Switzerland, a person from Kenya, a person from China, and a person from Egypt, two girls from Senegal who were twins, and that was led by the Surgeon General of Ethiopia. Now, I have to say, I was like a little bit overwhelmed by all of this. Again, you know, I grew up in Nelson, not, you know, not known for its diversity, probably more for its sunshine. And I met my first vegetarian at 18. You know, I was not ready for this. You know, these are the people, these people eat the food that my food eats. It's like, well, anyway, most vegetarians are nice. You should meet them. It's really great. Um, anyway, so, and I was completely overwhelmed by this because I thought, you know, you, you kind of, in a, you get this sense, don't you? you, just because you just swim in the pool that you swim in, you're mostly associating Christianity. I was mostly associating Christianity with people who look like me and people who sound like me. And it was just like a complete recalibration moment, particularly within this, like, within this, mass, within this conference in Malaysia. How many people from Africa were there? It's just overwhelming. And how many people had basically snuck out from China? It was absolutely overwhelming. And what, you know, the risks they had to take to get there was like pretty big. And this really, this recalibration moment really hit home again as I got home from that. And um, I read this book by Philip Jenkins called The New Faces of Christianity. And he makes this point. He makes the point that you know, Christianity is the most culturally and ethnically diverse movement that humanity has ever experienced. Christianity is the most culturally and ethnically diverse movement that has ever happened in the human race. Here's the stats on this. 2015 is pretty much our best data set that we've got on uh, global Christianity uh, today. And um, you know, as it stands today, you can, you know, if you get bored in the sermon, just Wikipedia this. All the stats are there. You know, 31% of our global population are Christians. 31%. Now, I know you don't really get the sense of that as you, you know, as we wander around Newmarket with our coffees and hang out and have a great time. You don't feel like you're bumping into Christians all the time, right? You're catching the bus in Penrose, you're bumping into Christians. You're, it's just kind of what we do. We don't kind of get that sense, is it, in New Zealand that, you know, one in three people in the world today are Christians. It's, we just don't get that sense. But that is actually uh, the case. You know, 2.38 million people Roughly speaking, that breaks down to 25% of these guys, they live in Europe, tw- uh, 25% live in South and Central America, 22% live in Africa, 15% in Asia, and 12% in North America. And you know, since the 20th century, the actual 
growth in Christianity in the non-Western world has, has been absolutely breathtaking. It's absolutely breathtaking. You know, from the 1970s, Christianity has grown in Eastern Asia, so that's Korea, China, and Japan, from 1.2% to 10.5%. So what that means today is that there's more people about to go to church in China today than there is in all of Christian Europe. It's absolutely phenomenal what we're a part of. It's, you know, it's, it's, we don't get the sense of it here, but it's absolutely uh, massive. In, 19, um, in yeah, 1910, 9% of the African population were Christians. Now it's 49.3% of the population are Christians. And that curve is really starting to get steep uh, in Africa today. So what does all this mean? It means that Jesus is doing exactly what he said he'd be doing. It means that Jesus is at work reconciling humanity back to the original intention of being a diverse, multi-ethnic family, which in its diverse unity can image God into the world. This is what Jesus is up to. Remember how this all started 2,000 years ago? 12 guys, not really sure which way's up. Now today, you know, that work continues. Jesus is at work today to bring healing to them and to create a multi-ethnic family through which God can be imaged uh, to the world. And for me, the shift has been from this being something that's incidental to uh, the gospel to actually seeing this as actually something that's absolutely central to the Christian gospel, and my relationship with God actually fits in with that. Does that make sense? Usually in the West, we've got this round the other way. We want to make, you know, we say this is, our relationship with God is central, and kind of this other part, this reconciliation part, well, that's incidental. It's actually the other way around. It's still important, still our personal faith is absolutely important, but it is, uh, nevertheless, uh, the other way around. Let me show you how uh, this all works. All right, let's head to the Bible. What time is it, by the way? How are we going? Oh, shoot. All right, we're going we're gonna to do this quick. Okay, so think about this. So the story of the Bible opens. If you're new to the Bible, it starts, the story of the Bible um, starts in the book of Genesis in a garden, and it ends in the book of Revelation in this massive city with all these people gathered around the throne, a restored humanity. So what began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve were given this charge to basically be a blessing, be the conduit through which God would bless the world. Together, Adam and Eve were to image God into the world. And what that meant was that it was a co-ruling project. Adam and Eve were to co-rule the world uh, with God and be the conduit through which God would bless the world. So Adam and Eve turn away from God and turn away from that project. And so, that, so in Genesis 12, which basically sets the frame for the whole of the rest of Genesis, which is the rest of the kind of um, 40-odd chapters, is that that charge that was given to Adam and Eve now in calling is being given to Abraham, or Abram at this point. His role, he's the person, through him and through his offspring, the project of humanity that was began with Adam and Eve would begin to be put back on track. But I want to, um, let's have a look at exactly how um, God um, gets us going. 
He says, so it's in Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, good time to get into ministry, by the way. I actually feel 99. (laughs) uh, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, hello Adam and Eve, and I will make, make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will be your God, to, and to you, oh sorry, and to your offspring uh, after you. So notice what's going on here. Here we have God's intention of getting the project of humanity um, back on track, and it's by forming a single fano, a single family. And that's going to be through Abraham. Abraham's going to be the ancestor or the father of this. But also notice that it's a family that's made up of a multitude of different nations, that God, with God as the unifying center. And it says that kings shall come from you. Again, this whole, whole idea of ruling, um, that's back on track, and that was supposed to be the job of Adam and Eve. But, but, but the key thing here is that ruling function that this one family is supposed to have, that ruling is connected to the idea of imaging God. To image God means to be co-partnering with God uh, in the world. And that happens through the single multi-ethnic family or multi-nation family. So now let's flip to the total other end of the Bible. So if you've got, this is how it starts, this is how it ends in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation creates is a kind of this big picture. In fact, it's a number of different portraits of how this whole story of the Bible comes to uh, its conclusion. Now let's have a look at this. Then I saw a lamb. This is talking about the person of Jesus, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and, oh, sorry, and the elders. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, and with your blood you have purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There's so much to uh, say here. Timekeeper Steve won't allow me to go on too much, but I just want to say a couple of things. The first thing to say here, of course, is that whatever Jesus is about, whatever the Bible is about, it's not about creating a monoculture. It's not about creating a monoculture, and neither is it actually populating heaven with individuals either. Let's have a look at here. Um, you will, oh yeah, let's just go with this. And they, that whatever this people are supposed to do, they will, they're created to reign on the earth. Remember the Lord's Prayer? What was Jesus praying? Your kingdom come, your will be done where? Yeah. On earth as in heaven. It's on earth where the action is uh, to be taking place. Now, for 
as part of all this, there's this really good theologian called Gordon Fee. Unfortunately, he uh, recently died. Canadian theologian, amazing guy. And he's got this great line that says, for sure, we all come to Jesus one by one. But Jesus doesn't want us to stay one by one. And that is because the creature called humanity is actually a plural entity. The creature called humanity is a plural entity. It's a family. And what is more, it's only as a family that we can image God into the world. You got, we're all, we're all, all here? So remember Adam and Eve, they were a family. That was only as a family they can image God into the world. Now what that is saying is that you and I still have huge intrinsic value because we still image God into the world, but we do so only in a derivative sense. It's like this. It's like that you and I are all are like facets of a multifaceted lens through which God can be imaged into the world. But it's actually through the multifaceted nature of this multi-ethnic family that that is achieved. Does that make sense? So you, we, still, we all have intrinsic value. We all, each of us, hold like we're like a little facet of that lens. But it's only because of the fact that we are actually connected to all the other elements to form the family, and that is the way that we image God uh, into the world. That's why family is so important, and that's why kingdom come actually is so important. I mean, this is actually a long sell just to get you there on Tuesday night, of course. But what we're saying is, you know, the whole, the importance of what we're doing here, inviting people into the family of God, is that, you know, as we practice praying for others as a family, and as we connect to internationally, the other kind of, the larger family of the church, and we're praying for others, the importance of that lies in the fact that it's only as a family that you invite people into a family. It's only as a family that you can invite people back into the family. And what's Jesus doing? He's drawing the family of humanity back together. So that dream that one day that humanity can be a family is actually beginning to become true. That's the importance of doing something like gathering on Tuesday nights, the importance of praying together as a family for others to be encountering the transforming love of Jesus because it's only as a family that we can invite people into uh, the family. The second thing I want to say here is that notice what this family is constituted from. The renewed humanity is described like this. Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. In fact, that phrase has a number of different ways it gets voiced, but in the in the main, that phrase gets articulated 10 times throughout the book of Revelation. So in the book of Genesis, you've got the 10 words that kick off uh, creation. You've got the 10 commandments. You've got this rep- replicated 10 times. Now, that could be just, you know, oh, well, that was interesting. But it actually does seem to be a design pattern hidden underneath within the book of Revelation that this is super, super important. And in fact, um, so... What we have here is that we have a multinational family being drawn together. In fact, this image gets even more interesting as it pans out in Revelation 21. You basically get a step back from this, and it says this. One of the seven angels carried me, and that was John, away in the spirit to a great uh, mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. 
The city does not need the sun nor the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. The point being made here is in the same way that we all hold a particular facet of the image of God, so countries, so nations, so ethnicities themselves are, hold a kind of reflective value or have a particular um, a gift in the process of reflecting the image of God into the world. So just as we kind of form part of this big kind of like lens ourselves, so in a much larger sense, in a much larger facet, is countries or nations or people of different ethnicities and tribes and uh, of different tongues. So, and it talks about them as having a particular gift. This is what it means when it says they have their own, their particular gifts, they've got particular honor and particular splendor. What it's talking about here is the unique way that each culture reflects the creative beauty and the imagination of God uh, into the world. And so when that's incorporated into this big lens called the image of God, then humanity can image God uh, into the world. And so the question is, you know, what, the question we've got to be asking ourselves is if each particular culture, has a particular way in which it images God into the world. You've got to think about, gosh, what gifts do the, you know, Kenyans bring? What gifts do the, you know, the people from Papua New Guinea bring? What gift do the Chinese bring? What gift do the Afghanis bring? Or what gift do the Fijians bring? Or what gifts do the Singaporeans bring? Or what gift do the Irish bring? And it's always a big question, right? But, you know, you've got the sense in which each culture, each ethnicity has got a particular set of gifts and a particular way of imaging God into the world, and that needs to be incorporated into this much larger reality called the family of God. So each culture has kind of maybe got a certain kind of music, a certain approach to art, a certain approach to commerce. Some have whole different values around community, generosity, wisdom traditions. Others have a great kind of value around individualism and the way that rationality works. Other cultures have an understanding of um, the way that the natural world works. Others, um, a gift around technology. The point here that the Bible is saying is that you know, all of these splendors, all of these glories, all of these honors are required to, for the family of God in order to image God uh, into the world. Without that, the imaging of God into the world would be incomplete. How are we going? We're all there, right? So the interesting dynamic here, of course, is that you know, each culture, each ethnicity or person actually doesn't lose their distinctiveness when they find themselves identifying with the person of Jesus and becoming part of the family of God. People don't lose their distinctiveness. Rather, their distinctiveness is validated and enriched. Is that good? <laughs> I'm getting a lot of blank faces here. Is this like, is this too much? So the, so the, so the idea here is not that, again, we're creating a monoculture. It's actually that it's understanding the importance of your individual distinctiveness, understanding the importance of each kind of cultural distinctiveness and what each, each ethnicity brings to this. Because God, remember, is drawing together a multi-ethnic family through whom God can be imaged into 
the world. And to the degree that that distinctiveness is lost, so we lose some of the imaging ability to um, project God into the world. So each one is distinctly, you know, and super important. Um, I'm going to speed up here. Um, the, uh, speaking about the role that the gospel has in actually preserving uh, local distinctiveness and enhancing local cultures, um, the famous, there's this guy here, Laman Sane, he's an absolutely wonderful, was a wonderful um, theologian. I met him in London. He's uh, from Gambia. He um, holds, held positions in Yale and Harvard and uh, world Christianity. The most amazing mind. It feels like, man, you're tapping into affinity when you hear him speak, the most amazing uh, theologian. And he noticed that at the core of Africanness, for example, was the conviction that the world is deeply impacted by unseen spiritual realities, both good and bad. And so the question that was on the heart of most Africans was, you know, who is going to have the final say on these realities? And he makes the point that when an African goes to one of the great secular universities in the world, you know, a professor would tell um, her that the solution to her fears is to say to herself, gosh, there are no actual evil spirits or good or bad or anything like that in the world. Everything has a scientific explanation. So when she goes to one of the great universities in the world, for sure they want to say, hey, we want to hear your African voice, we want to hear your African perspective, but only if you take the heart of your Africanness out. And as opposed to this kind of the Western secular um, scientific bias, Sane was saying that the flowering of Christianity in Africa um, was able to get going because it took a completely different approach and in fact empowered Africans to reconfigure their internal framework without it being overthrown. And that process was primarily through Bible translation. But let me quote him um, for you. He said, it was not that the old spells, turning benign from overuse, had dulled the appetite, but that under challenge, their spent potency sparkled a clamor for a valiant God. People sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Now, just as the Bible has really pressed, or the Bible and this kind of concept of humanity being a family, really pushed Africans to reconfigure their framework about what does it mean to be a renewed African, So the Bible actually pushes our categories uh, as well, especially for us, we live in a late, um, you know, modern Western context. And in particular, what really is being pushed for us uh, today is actually the idea of our identity as individual human beings. And in a nutshell, what the Bible is saying is that while our individual identity is important, the Bible actually also wants to reconfigure our idea of what it means to be an individual identity. And it pushes that idea by saying, just as the many nations and cultures and uh, peoples and people of different tongues, just as those, all, of these, all this variety gets drawn into the one family of God without losing any of its distinctiveness, 
So I need the many in order to be truly a one. So you can't be a one by being one by itself. So what, from the Bible's point of view, I can only fulfill my identity as an image-bearing creature in connection with other image-bearing creatures who are different from me. In fact, it's only in relationship with other individual image-bearing creatures that my individual distinctiveness is actually truly validated. And that's because they need me just as much as I need them. Our individual distinctiveness is truly important, but it's out of serving. It's out of serving. It's realizing that we can't be a one without the many. By ourselves, we're not ourselves. Our humanity is actually comprised of other people's humanity. Right? I know it's early in the morning. I'm going to land the ship. What the Bible is really challenging us to understand is that I cannot fully realize my humanity without fully understanding or appreciating or feeling connected to other expressions of human culture. So what that means is to be a part of the family of God, and this is what it means to be a part of what it means to image God to the world, which by definition is what it means to be a human being. It means to be joining with Jesus and being a part of reconciling the diverse nations of the world into a diverse multinational family of God. Tifana Itiatua. I want to come into land um, today by, by recycling a quote that we've used a number of times here. It's from Stanley Howarth. And hopefully this really lands for us. He says this, the most interesting creative political solution we Christians have to offer our troubled society is the church. Here we show the world a manner of life the world can never achieve through social coercion or government action. We serve the world by showing it something that it is not, namely a place where God is forming a family out of strangers.